the book without question is is in our minds a confession Ron was an amazing young man who had hopes and dreams you know the last act of his life was heroic Welcome to Parallel Justice. I'm Renee Williams, the Executive Director of the National Center for Victims of Crime and your host for this series. Sometimes the criminal justice system fails to obtain justice for victims. This can occur when prosecutions end in acquittal or if charges are not filed at all. Even following a conviction, victims of crime can be left with devastating damages. So what then is civil justice? Well, crime victims can file civil lawsuits against offenders and other responsible parties, regardless of the outcome of the criminal prosecution, or even if there was no prosecution at all. Though money awarded in civil lawsuits can never fully compensate a victim for the trauma of victimization, it can be a valuable resource to help victims of crime rebuild their lives. And it is a powerful incentive to hold institutions, landlords, businessmen, and employers accountable. In this series, we will look at civil justice thought for criminal acts and bring together diverse perspectives to tackle complex questions of accountability, justice, and healing. Parallel Justice is brought to you by the National Crime Victim Bar Association, which is a program of the National Center for Victims of Crime. More information about the National Center and the National Crime Victim Bar Association is available at victimsofcrime.org. Please be advised that some of the topics we discuss may be disturbing, and these are intended for adult audiences only. Some of these topics may also be triggering. We encourage you to practice good self-care and seek support. Confidential, compassionate support is available via call, text, or chat at victimconnect.org. The views expressed in the following podcast are those of our guests, who are experts in these areas. These opinions are invaluable. However, they do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Center for Victims of Crime. We acknowledge that some of these views may be controversial. However, our goal in these discussions is to raise awareness of victims' rights and the options available to them. Please enjoy the podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Parallel Justice. Joining me again this week are Kim and Fred Goldman. Last week, we discussed their experience during the infamous criminal trial of O.J. Simpson. Now this week, we're going to look at how they made change through the civil justice system. Kim and Fred, thanks so much for coming back. I wanna start with a very basic question of how did you know what civil justice was and how did you decide to pursue it? Um, I don't remember exactly how we learned about it. I do. But you do, of course you do, because my memory is terrible. Go no, for because it, it was how awful. It was an awful situation so my birth mother um who my brother and i had no relationship with um filed a civil lawsuit um july 4th weekend which was however many weeks after my brother was killed sharon uh my birth mom filed a wrongful death suit in the amount of one million dollars and i was in brooklyn new york i remember exactly where i was um, and I called my dad and I thought, what, A, what is that? And B, she only thinks he's worth $1 million, but we had no idea. We had no idea what that meant. Um, but having said that, because she filed that case as early as she did, 
it put our case in the queue, so to speak. So when the criminal justice system did not give us what we wanted, when my dad and I finally filed our own, my dad filed um, a civil suit at the very tail end, you have a statute of limitations on that. And so we essentially joined her case, having our own separate case, but we joined her case, but because she filed as early as she did, our case got to go through the system much quicker, um, which again, this was all information we had no idea. Um, we were, we were judged harshly for that choice um, because everyone thought we were just out for money, but we had no idea. Honestly, we just did it. We filed our case because we knew we had to within a time frame. We filed it in May, one year. It was, my brother was killed in June. We filed in May so we could get into the, we had to file within a year. Um, and we just did it because we didn't want to not have the opportunity, um, but our case hadn't ended. The criminal case hadn't ended at that point yet, but we did it to like reserve our spot, so to speak, um, if this is making sense. Um, and Renee, you're an attorney, you can click, clean this part up, but um, that's what we did. And, and as when the criminal case ended, then we started learning really what a civil case was and what a wrongful death case was because we had no idea because it was unheard of at that point. We just, we knew somewhere it was a little small remedy, but we didn't know. Um, and then the hunt for, um, a civil, uh, a civil attorney happened, but um, that was the reason because my birth mother was greedy, if I'm being honest, but thank God she was. If she preserved her statute of limitations. <laughs> I mean, I, I hate to sound so callous about it, but my gosh, I mean, that's what happened, so. And legally, there are a lot of benefits to a civil trial in that yeah. you can pick your own attorney, you are the client, so they are representing yeah. you and your interests. And more importantly, the burden of proof is significantly different. Right, um, which is also why people think that, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a sham, right? Like, he, he wasn't really guilty because you didn't have to prove as much, you know? And so there was a big education, um, you know, for us to understand how the civil system works. Um, and then also to be able to explain it to people, you know, that, that he was, it's, it's, it's punitive damage, it's compensatory damage. And, you know, that's the punishment, but in criminal case, it's jail, like really trying to understand, you know, and educate people on the different course um, and, and the different um, punishment phase, so to speak. Um, and, you know, you said that we were able to choose our own attorney. One thing that my dad said earlier that this case wasn't about us, but the civil case was, it gave us our voice back. It, it empowered my dad and I, um, it was in, incredibly um, important because it, it put victims back where they needed to be. It gave us a little bit of our power back. Um, and I'm super proud of, of what we did. Um, the elation lasted about 40 seconds um, when he got up from the table and walked out the front door and went for ice cream, but to have it in, in writing 12 jurors um, unanimously, you know, voting that he was responsible for Ron and Nicole's murder, um, their death. Um, I, I, I will never forget having that moment for sure. Yeah, I think for our, for us, we had already at that point had a court deny us or deny Ron the justice he deserved. And we had to find a way to get a court to acknowledge that um, this monster was in fact responsible and guilty. Um, and we ultimately got that, fortunately. But I, I, think, I think a lot of the criticism and maybe, you know, Renee, this is what you were hinting to that, you know, the criticism of us was that we were just out for money um, because that is the only 
that that's the only resolution to that process is 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 compensatory damages right financial financial punishment um but my dad and i it was important for us to have it just on the record you know just having it a, a case be heard to be argued and and have witnesses and testimony to have the killer he was obligated he had no he had to appear um, which didn't have to happen in the criminal case. Um, that was a big win for us to be able to have him on record. Um, but to have 12 jurors unanimous, unanimously agree that he was responsible, that was all we wanted. And to be able to have it in writing on record, we have that piece of paper. The judgment is, is, is like a it's like monopoly money. There's, the system doesn't provide you any resources to collect on your judgment. I mean, that, I mean, here we are 20 some odd years later and we still have nothing. We can't, there's nothing, we can't get anything. So, and the system doesn't give you the, the support for that. You have to fight tooth and nail for that if you have any money to hire attorneys to do that. So that's a whole other concept, but for us just having it on the record and being able to know based on, on, on evidence and testimony and, and a jury process that he was responsible for those deaths, that, that was what my dad and I did that for. And I wouldn't change it for a second, even you know, despite all no. the criticism. Um, I agree. Despite all the criticism and the name calling and everything else, um, that for me was those things were irrelevant because we knew we were doing the right thing and we're going to follow through with it. And ultimately, I don't, most people don't realize it, but ultimately, when you do receive, if you're lucky enough to receive a, a decision in your favor, um, you get a piece of paper that is worth what the paper is worth. We had a judgment um, for a huge amount of money, but it was worth only the paper that it was that was printed on. Um, from that point forward, it's up to you, the victim or the family members of the victim, to try to turn it into a pun, a real punishment of, of making the, uh, the, the killer quote unquote responsible, but he and his attorneys did everything possible to make certain that he would never pay one single penny. The killer swore he'd never pay any of it. And for the most part, he has not any any part of the judgment that you could say we collected on was things that we took away from him. He has never voluntarily paid one single penny. And all you know was an, it, it, it was enough for us to take things away from him, but not not totally enough. It, it shifted, you know, for, for us, because again, the criticism, it, it, we still get it <laughs> um, for, for, pursuing, for pursuing the judgment because people just assume it's blood money, right? And so I, I've moved to the point now where, yeah, let it be about the money. Let me figure out a way to take everything I possibly can from that person so that his life is rendered painful and uncomfortable. And I, I'm totally okay with that now because that's all I have. That's what the system afforded me. Why would I not take advantage of the system that's in front of us to make him pay? That, that's, the, that's, 
what the punishment is, is to make him pay. So if I don't pursue the judgment, then I've let him off the hook. Nobody would do that. No, nobody would do that, yeah, right? But for whatever reason, because our case was so public, people think that, you know, poor, poor him, he's out of prison. You got to let him, he needs to be able to pay his bills. No, I, he could pay his bills, but he also has a 40 some odd million dollar bill to us, but he doesn't have to pay that. There's no, no collectors coming along and garnishing his wages because he doesn't work and because his pensions are protected. And because for years he was living in a state that protected everything. So I have reconciled for, for a long time now that it is okay for my dad and I to pursue that judgment because it is the only way to ultimately pay, make him pay um, for the crimes that he committed. And that's what the system afforded us. And so I'm well within my rights to do that. And I dare anybody, God forbid, if you were ever in this situation, you do the exact same thing because that's all you have. So I do want to talk about one of the more creative ways you have found to collect and take from him, which is the book he wrote. Yes. What was your reaction when you found out he was coming out with that? And outrage. outrage, was there any way you could stop it or did you try? Well, our first thought was, oh my God, you know, he's going to, he's going to write this book about um, everything he did and it's going to be horrible, et cetera. And, um, but in reality, and I, I, I am missing in my brain, some of the legal details of how we accomplished it. But we went to court and um, tried to stop him publishing the book. Uh, he had already received, I think it was $7 million in um, uh, upfront money. And uh, the book was due to be published shortly. And um, we wanted to stop that from happening. The judge, however, said, um, you, they couldn't stop him from publishing it, but they could take away the rights to the book. So uh, the judge gave us the rights to the book. And um, having the rights to the book meant we could, we could ourselves sell it or, um, or ultimately publish it. We had heard that uh, there was another publisher that had been chasing the killer around for the rights to publish it, um, and were worried that that publisher might have turned out to be the only other viable publisher that was interested in it. And if this guy was the only one really interested, we were worried that he could have been not a positive factor in getting the rights to the book. So um, we chose after getting a copy of the book, which we all read, um, and after reading it, we discovered it was more like a confession than um, the if I did it baloney. And um, reading it as a confession, we decided we would publish it ourselves, and um, and we did that. Um, we changed the name of the book very slightly from If I Did It 
to I did it. We took the word if and in a very small way put it in the middle of an I, the word I, so that the book title looked to be I did it. And then we added confessions of a killer. And uh, we added uh, a chapter written by Dominic Dunn and a chapter written by the um, ghostwriter that wrote the book with the killer. And um, he, for the most part, we think was a confession in that book. He, he, he actually explained, uh, had answers to unknown questions that the prosecutors had always wanted to know. He had the answers. One of them was how did he get from the crime scene to his house as quickly as he did. And, and he said something to the effect of, it was easy. I did this, 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 and this. Uh, he also put himself at the scene um, and out of a clear blue sky, suddenly was with someone he named Charlie. Um, and he said that Charlie handed him a knife. And the next thing he was talking about that he was covered in blood. Uh, but Charlie never appeared in the book again. So it was it was the killer's way of trying to, excuse me, bull crap his way out of where did the knife come from that he didn't bring it. But um, the book, without question, is is in our minds a confession. Um, and the book was very successful, and uh, it was for that for that part probably the single single um, way only of any consequence that we had in collecting on the judgment. So, so I'm going to just really quickly interject here for a second. So I'm going to fill in some of the, the little holes because um, my dad is correct in a lot, but he's it's out of sequence. Um, and I think that there's a big that's part me. that might, no, that's okay. But there's a big part that's missing, which I think is super important. So the, the book was done. He had already received his advance. It was, it was being distributed. There was 500,000 copies of it or whatever it was. Um, being shipped to bookstores. When we found out about it, we raised hell and started a huge um, media campaign and got that book pulled off the shelves, got it pulled from production because we deemed it as a, uh, as a manual for murder. And that was before we ever read the book. So once Rupert Murdoch from Fox and the company that was supposed to put it on TV and the publishing company um, decided um, to pull the book from, from distribution, um, our attorneys, our civil attorneys put a lien on the book um, because we had a multi-million dollar judgment and he shouldn't be making any money from that book because, or it should be coming to us because we had this judgment. In that process, we found out that he um, entered into a contract with a sham company, which we later found out was how he was moving money around all these years without us knowing. The company was in the name of his two eldest daughters. Um, and so he then, because we figured that out, um, he filed bankruptcy on that court, on that business. Mm. Um, and in that process, um, he filed the wrong kind of bankruptcy, bankruptcy. I forget which one it was, but the one that he 
you're supposed to liquidate your assets. And then there's the one that you can restructure your company. Um, whatever one he did, he did the wrong one. And then when he tried to fix it, the judge went, no, 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 no. I see what's happening here. The judge took ownership of the case, put it in bankruptcy court, ruled against whatever it was he was doing, ordered the bankruptcy court um, uh, to liquidate his assets because we were the biggest creditor. We got assigned the, the, the burden of having to publish the book. So it wasn't that we chose to, Dad. The judge ordered us to publish that book because we had the biggest interest in making the book successful, so to speak, because of the judgment we had against us. So there was no, no choice. In any, right. There's that's no right. choice in any of this. This is what the judge decided was going to happen. So when all the money, all the money, the very little bit of money, so he had to return some of the money that he supposedly received from his advance, that all got put into bankruptcy court. And anybody that he owed money to all through their credit into the their liens into the bankruptcy court so while my dad and i were getting death threats for publishing this book we were paying off all of his debt so any money that came in from that book went right into the pub to the bankruptcy court it paid it paid the bankruptcy attorneys it paid the probate attorneys it paid his direct tv bill it paid his ford bronco bill that he was out any attorneys he had that's what happened there. So all these people. Can I interject? And, and, so, and I, let me interject. And one other thing that it paid were his kids, that he had had an agreement with his kids that that advance, that he was going to split it with them, which he never did. So because of what we did, his kids actually received some money. So. And, and Nicole's family, because they put their judgment in. I mean, that, that's what happened there. And so when we ended up getting the book and we read the book, then we're like, oh, wait a minute, this is more like a confession. So it, that's how we presented it. We were disgusted by it. I didn't want to hold the cover up. I didn't want to have anything to do with it, but we were ordered by the judge to do that. And we had to report back and we had to turn everything over to the bankruptcy court. Um, and, and, and they were, they kept saying that we are incentivized because of our judgment and they were ordered to monetize the only asset that he had, which was that book. The part that my dad was talking about before about a publisher, um, there was a, a worry at some point that the rights were going to revert back to him and he was going to auction the book off at a sheriff's auction or something to that effect. And there was a, supposedly there was someone coming in with a ton of money that was going to try to take the book. Um, and it was someone in his camp. Um, that was what my dad was talking about by a, a publisher that was trying to do something that wasn't right. But that all went by the wayside when the bankruptcy court took over. Um, so that became an asset of the court and we were ordered, which in the book, uh, when we published it, my dad is correct, Dominic Dunn and, and the ghostwriter. And then we wrote a chapter trying to explain how that all went down because how is this family who for however many months was screaming from the rooftops this is disgusting and you shouldn't do this and this is horrible as a murderer and then now here we are you know promoting a stupid book and so that's how that happened um so it, it was not fun my dad and i were horrified by the whole process um stick to our stomach about it but that's what the judge ordered us to do and i can't even tell you i think it was pennies on the dollar because we paid out all these other people all of his other debts um, but again, for us, it was about the confession. That's how we presented it. Um, and then when we published that book and we were out talking about it was the day that he broke into the hotel room in Vegas to steal back his stuff. So if that ever was what pushed him over the edge, then hallelujah for us publishing it. Well, and I think there is another silver lining to the book 
which in addition to him being sentenced to prison for the length of time that he was, is that it really began to change the tide, at least from an outsider's perspective of public opinion. Yeah. So if there was ever a question, I think that that question dissipated. I, I definitely think, um, and, and I think that's where, you know, when my dad and I read it, we're like, wait a minute, this is weird. Like, this is nuts what he actually wrote in there. And who in their right mind does that? You know, a, a psychopath, a murderer who felt like his voice was quelled for so long. That, that's who does that. And I talked to Pablo Fenves, who wrote the book with him um, as a ghostwriter and and, you know, he, the killer, and we call him the killer, you know, chomping at the bit to tell his story. He hated that everybody was speaking on his behalf, you know, and he never got to, to say what he wanted to say and, and to tell the story from his, I mean, who in their right mind writes a fictional version of how their beloved wife and mother of their children gets decapitated? I mean, it's disgusting. It's, so even if you just put it in that framework, what the, you know, so... Um, I, I mean, I think that that for a lot of people really did, like you said, Renee, change the tide. Um, but people still to this day argue that they think it's somebody else and whatever. I just yeah. have to add that you, you have not just heard one of the many, many reasons that I'm thankful for my daughter. She remembers <laughs> the, the details of virtually anything and everything that I have no ability to do. And thank you, Kim, for clarifying everything I couldn't. That's okay, Jeff. I mean, this is where we, we fill in the blanks for each other. It's all right. It's a good thing we have this stuff written down. I mean, this is where when all of the criticism for us writing books, this is why, because my memory, and so I go back and I refer, I'm like, what did, what did I say 20 years ago? Because that was my precious memory, right? So, but, and there's enough, there's enough documented on this case so we can get ourselves and you know yeah. how the media is you make one statement <laughs> incorrect and it's like that oh yeah yeah the criminal trial generated to borrow from your book kim an absolute media circus and your podcast really tried to flip the narrative so i want to talk very quickly about your podcast and the power you felt in reclaiming the story and what drove you to do that and if, if it helped you heal along the way? Um, I think uh, doing, doing my podcast, um, I didn't really know how the process would make me feel, um, but I, 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 so I was open to whatever was gonna come, but I think it was really important for, for me, and again, I, I know I speak for other victims and survivors, um, is to be able to, to, to reclaim the story, right? And to take it back from, from everybody else who thinks they have ownership over it. And for so many years, people talked about it as if it was their life, their story, their brother, their family member. And while I love that in theory, it kept moving us out of, out of the conversation. And because so many, you know, stories and shows and articles, you know, they pluck out what part they think is going to make a more sensationalistic topic and, and sell, so to speak. So for me, it was like, I have questions. I have things that are confusing to me. I, I want to know in my own words and in my own thoughts and feelings about stuff. And so going back and talking to people that were part of the case, the investigators, um, you know, Marsha and Chris, the district attorneys, jurors, um, you know, one of the defense um, investigators, which that one got edited really short and it was a really good episode. 
Um, but it was important for me because I, I wanted control. And I think, you know, for my dad and I, as, as much as we participate in interviews and stuff, there is zero control in the end because an editor or a publisher gets to come along and like I said, make a soundbite. And, you know, my dad and I have gotten really good, maybe not right now, but we're usually really good at being able to talk in really short, succinct things because I can't edit it, right? Um, but this was, I wanted it to breathe. I, I wanted the show to breathe. I wanted people to feel like they could finally speak candidly and honestly without fear of retaliation and and from an honest authentic place um it was it was really liberating for me it was super hard the jurors were hard to talk to um it was hard to go back to the courtroom um it was the first time i had done that um but it was important and it was powerful and um, i'm super glad that i did it and and so am i glad that you did it um for me, it gave me a, one more reason to have the the unbelievable pride I have in my daughter. Uh, she's a an amazing young woman, and uh, gives me reason every day to be proud of her. Thanks, Daddy. Thanks. Um, but I, I I think you know to 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 refocus it to you know victims and survivors and making sure that we're always doing things that give them their their power for me to be able to come from that place because it was my story um and i got to dictate how i wanted it to be i got to ask questions i got to pick and choose um and 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 try to get clarity on things that were confusing like why certain pieces of evidence didn't get put into the case why did a juror make that decision i mean how often do we ever give that opportunity to a victim and a survivor to be able to 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 take that ownership um, and so I think for me, that was really Im Im important um, because I think it's super important to give the voice back to where it belongs and to put the spotlight on where it belongs. And that's on grief and recovery and, and support and resources. And, and, you know, we talked about domestic violence. I had a grief specialist and, you know, there were really lots of parts of it that were really important for me. Um, even though it was my unique story, I wanted the story to help other people. And so the two episodes that were the most important, the three episodes, one about my brother was the most important. Um, and then the one on domestic violence. Um, and then obviously the one on grief. Um, David Kessler, who's a grief expert, was fantastic. And I still get messages, people quoting his parts um, because it's amazing. It's amazing how connected we all are when we start having conversations um, about hard stuff. And putting the spotlight back where it belongs for our last question, and I want to make sure that I give you both plenty of time to talk through this. And don't worry, we won't cut this part unless you tell us to. How do you <laughs> want Ron and your family both to be remembered? Um, well, first of all, for me, it's not about us being remembered only Ron. Um, I want Ron to be remembered for who he was, an amazing young man who was always willing to be there for somebody else. And in this case, being there for somebody else cost him his life. Um, I've always been and will always be proud of Ron. That's the one time I wish that he hadn't wanted to do something for somebody else because it cost him his life. But that's who he was. 
and that's who I am forever proud of. Ron was an amazing young man who had hopes and dreams um, beyond anything I ever thought he was doing. We found things about what he was planning on after his death, things that we didn't know about because he was planning it on his own. Um, but um, Ron always had a smile on his face and it was always there for somebody else. And I miss him deeply and will always miss him. Um, I, I think about him virtually every day um, because it's, he is the, the single missing piece in my life. And there isn't a day that goes by that I don't realize that. And that's all I care about is that people remember who Ron was and what he did. Um, we're, we're a side issue for me. I think, I, I, I think I, I mean, I know that I echo a lot of what my, my, my dad has said, both of us, you know, separately have acknowledged that we wish that my brother would have been more selfish, um, in the last, you know, couple minutes of his life, but that would not have been true to who and what his character was. Um, and so I have to be proud and, and honored that right up until the end, my brother didn't run. I mean, he could have, he could, he could have run. And so I, I am. I am proud of him. Um, you know, I did battle for a while about being angry about that, um, but I can't be angry at him for being who he was. Um, so I want people to remember him by his last, his last effort. You know, the last act of his life was heroic. And mm -hmm. I think that's pretty impressive. Um, as it relates to our family, I, I, I think I, over the last decade, have probably disagreed with my dad a little bit on this one. I, I'm, I'm okay with, the legacy, not being about my dad and I, but the legacy of, 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 of our family and the millions of other families that are fighting privately, um, you know, across the nation um, for victims' rights and, and to shed some light on the inequities in our system, the inequities in, in the victims' rights movement. Um, we just happen to have a pulpit sometimes that we can speak from. It doesn't mean that my dad and I are doing anything more than the next person. In fact, there's thousands of victims and survivors that are doing far more than my dad and I ever get to do. So I am proud of being able to constantly be shining a light somewhere where we don't often get to see. People don't often want to look. Um, I am proud of the fact that our case really started a conversation around domestic violence. Um, domestic violence laws. It talks a lot about restraining orders and like, we, who knew what that stuff was? I mean, it really did change and pave the way for so many laws that came later, um, you know, Violence Against Women Act and like, you know, the, the laws within, you know, statutory cases and, and restitution, like there's so many things came out of this. We can talk about civil, you know, the civil justice system. And I'm, and I'm proud of that. I, I don't take any credit for it. But I'm proud that our case, because it was on such a national stage, allowed for conversations to be had and brought to the forefront. Um, if it wasn't us, it would have been somebody else's case. But I'm proud that we got to be a little bit on the front end of that um, and some kind of um, cog in that wheel. Because, you know, 
if it isn't us, who, right? And so I think that's what happens with so many victims. If, if someone before you doesn't do it, someone has to, right? And so it takes courage, it takes resiliency, it takes, it takes power, it takes media. Um, you know, and I'm so proud when I turn on the TV and I see, you know, so many other victims' families like speaking up and standing out and, and fighting for what they believe in. And, you know, I'm constantly, Renee, you know this, I'm like, what, what can I do? Where can I, what can, and I, and I, I, I don't ever know where to go. I don't ever know what to do with the energy um, because there's so much work that gets to be done. And, and, you know, being a small part of the National Center has been so profoundly important to me. And, um, but just constantly talking, uh, maybe not as at length as my dad and I tend to do, but constantly talking and not being afraid to push back, not being afraid to call things out, not being afraid to talk in graphic ways so that people understand the brutality, um, not being afraid to talk about grief and the struggle. 27 years later, I'm still struggling. I have not had a good night's sleep since my brother died. My dad is the same. Um, it does not mean we can't have joy. It does not mean we can't smile. It does not mean we can't experience life in a profoundly wonderful, beautiful way. But grief is a, and if we don't talk about it and we don't express compassion and understanding about it, all that does is stifle us and isolate us more. And there are millions of people, millions of people going through this. So why are we not having more open dialogue about it? So I hope that's the legacy. Thank you, Kim. That was awesome. <laughs> And I, I have to say, as the executive director for the National Center for Victims of Crime, we want to thank you both on behalf of Victims Everywhere for standing up. And for everyone listening, so you know, Kim is currently the co-chair of the National Center, and we are so lucky to have her. That is all the time we have. I want to thank you both so much for sharing your story. I know pain is still raw even years later, so we very much appreciate you being willing to do this and for joining us today. Thank you, Renee. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this conversation. Again, we know the topics discussed can be difficult and may be emotionally triggering. Support is available at victimconnect.org through call, text, and chat. We encourage you to take time today to learn about your rights and options that are available to you. Building safer communities requires every one of us to take action. Visit victimsofcrime.org to learn more. This podcast was created by the National Center for Victims of Crime in partnership with our center and affiliate, the National Crime Victim Bar Association, the nation's first professional association of attorneys and expert witnesses dedicated to helping victims seek justice through the civil system. To support this podcast, please visit victimsofcrime.org slash donate. Parallel Justice is hosted by Renee Williams, written by Krista Anderson and Mariana Wells, edited by John Williams and produced by Deidre Watford.